welcome to the Enrollment Insights Podcast. Uh, this week, we're going to do things a little bit differently. Usually, we have some guests and we deep dive on some processes and, and some really interesting information. At the end of each quarter, Angela and I are going to sit down. We're going to kind of debrief and talk about what are the things that we've learned, what are some of the things we can bounce ideas and, and get each other's takes off. And in the show notes, you'll see just a big list of resources this time. So if you go back to the Enrollment Insights blog, uh, you can get to that at niche.bz slash podcast to get the show notes for everything. This will have all the resources we talk about and then probably some. Angela and I have a lot of these great conversations where it's bounce ideas or, hey, I found this thing. It's really cool. I learned a lot. What do you think? Uh, and, and we think there just might be some value and, and you share that and gain your feedback as listeners too. You might hear something and say, hey, have you thought about it this way? Or I love that. Here's how I take it. So, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I'm very excited about this. I, I think it's it's cool to give people a little bit of a window into the conversations that mm-hmm. we have behind the scenes and to talk about things that are a little bit different. You know, some of these are niche things and some of them aren't. So it's good to share some of the other inspiration that we get outside of our day-to-day work. Exactly. So Angela, I know you want to jump right into marketing topics. So I let's do. see what have you what have you been reading and learning about. <laughs> So one of the things that I'm really excited to share, because I think it addresses a question that I see across segments in K-12 anytime anything crazy happens in the news. And that is an NIS article that I came across called, When Should a School Issue an Official Statement? So it addresses that question head on. It's written by Tracy Sweet from Phillips Academy in Andover, um, a partner of ours for that matter. And it's just an excellent, excellent piece that provides a framework for how schools should think about whether or not they need to respond, how to respond when an incident happens in the news. And even though it was an independent school-focused article, I think there are some lessons there for anyone who's in a position of having your superintendent or your head of school or whoever that person is that's looking to you and saying, what are we supposed to do? You know, X, Y, Z happened. Are we, should we say something? What should that look like? And so in the piece, Tracy kind of level sets the way that she has approached this at Phillips Academy I think it's so helpful to be able to have that framework. And even though I I would not recommend stealing theirs verbatim, it does provide some really practical guidance that you can use and repurpose in your own school environment based on your values, based on your community and their needs. And so she recommends starting by asking questions about what your specific community needs, which I think is really important. And then that's followed by a series of questions to determine whether or not a statement is necessary because it isn't always. You you Mm -hmm. don't always have to say something. There isn't a blanket rule that every school should respond in some way to something that happens. And then whether or not your institution is positioned to advance the conversation, which I think is really, really important to think about. It's not just, hey, we're going to put a statement out, but what are you contributing to the discussion as an institution? She also talks about its relevance to our industry and education, which I think is a great filter to look through because not everything applies if you use that alone as a filter for for thinking about whether or not this is something that you need to do. And then the impact on your specific community. You know, an example of that that I've seen in the past is when, when Roe was overturned and there were some girls schools that felt compelled to respond. And that makes sense. You know, that was something that felt very authentic, very natural. That's, you know, a good example of really looking at, okay, how does our specific institution connect with this wider issue? And how can we advance the conversation? So it's not just about making the statement, but also showing, okay, what are you doing as an institution as a result of this? Are you creating spaces for students to engage in discussion? Are you making a donation, you know, for a specific Mm -hmm. cause? So really walking through not just the statement, but what comes after the statement, I think is really, really powerful. That's important. I mean, what are you adding to it? What right. are you, are you actually doing something? Are you saying something to check a box and say, oh, we took a stand. 
And now alumni and students can be happy and we move on and never actually make any change. Exactly. What else have you been reading on the marketing front? Anyone who has listened to me speak or seen me present or had coffee with me (laughs) or worked with me knows that I am obsessed with branding. And it's something that I get really excited about. It is the one area where in every industry I've worked in, I've really believed that is an opportunity for differentiation. You know, if if nothing else, you can stand behind your brand, provided that it's defined and executed properly. And there's a company, Ironclad Brand Strategy, that I've been following for some time after their founder did a LinkedIn training that I took a little while ago. What I love about this company and their blog is that they tend to focus more on advanced branding, if that makes sense. So it's very different from some of the branding content that you might see that's focused around schools and nonprofits who are a little bit more in their infancy with this type of work. And this piece is about the metrics of brand strategy, um, which caught my eye because having gone through a couple of rebranding exercises in the past and just observing how branding typically is defined and executed in the K-12 space for the schools that are fortunate enough to go through this exercise and truly define what their institution stands for beyond their visual identity, right? So we're not just talking about logos and mascots and colors and fonts, right? We're talking about the the very essence of an institution or a school district, you know, whatever, however your your educational environment is defined, you do all of that work, you go through the process of launching it, you know, you have a big event where you get people excited about it and you send mm-hmm. all of these emails, you might if you're really lucky and staying on top of things, do some training, which I really hope everyone is doing because none of this works if you don't train your people to understand not just the why, but the how you're actually going to express this brand. But things kind of fall off after that. You know, you launch a new website, you get some new swag, you might have a new style guide that you refer people to, and then nothing really happens. No one is really paying attention, uh, or actually, it's not even about paying attention. No one's defining what the metrics are for determining how and if your brand is successful. And so... Well, that's the hard part, right? How are you... Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Operationalizing it and measuring it are the toughest parts. And making sure people remember it's the constant training. And it's... Oh, yeah. You can't just have a meeting and show everyone and say, well, we checked that box because everyone's going to say, well, that's marketing's job. No, oh, oh, yes, (laughs) yes. Every time, every time. I'm sorry. There, there are words and pictures. No, that's the marketing office, right? That's what always happens. In addition to the fact that, yes, to your point, Will, it is an ongoing, continuous exercise. You have to really think about how you're going to measure its impact. And this article defined these metrics in a really excellent way. But I decided to translate some of them for (laughs) schools Mm -hmm. because. But it's that that's not always intuitive. So I'll hit on some of the highlights, you know, as Will mentioned, we'll link to all of these things in the show notes. But one of the things that they talk about is elevated pricing power. And so if you're a company, that means that people become less price sensitive to your offering because they understand the value, right? It's very Hmm. clear. And one of the things that branding is supposed to do is provide clarity, right? Hmm. And if you're a school that charges tuition, well, then that means that people will be less sensitive to tuition costs, which, as we know, are going up and up and up every year. And if you're in the role that I used to be in and you're, you know, wringing your hands every January about sending out that letter about the tuition increase, Mm -hmm. you can take some of that anxiety away because through your brand and and your your positioning and the actual operationalization of that brand your family should understand what they're paying for they should be able to see that value and they shouldn't be questioning it and they they should be willing to pay a premium price for it because they they understand what they're getting for that premium price Another one was increased customer retention and loyalty which I think is much more intuitive for schools and that 
in short, it means your retention goes up, your attrition goes down, and your giving increases. And so those are all things that you can expect to see with a well-executed brand. Branding is a long game. Even though the visual pieces of it can happen relatively quickly, I mean, doing real branding work is something that's a months-long process that sort of culminates in this big, you know, confetti cannon style, ta-da, <laughs> wherever you, you, you roll out all of the pretty things that everyone tends to associate with a brand. But being able to get to a place where we can, you can really evaluate these metrics and see your brand at work, you know, how it translates in the marketplace, how it impacts family enrollment and your reputation in the market. All of those are things that take time. And so if you're going to replay this episode for, you know, a head of school or superintendent or someone who's not sitting in the marketing seat, I would really emphasize that a rebranding exercise in and of itself is not going to bring families knocking on your door. It's something that takes time and it's supposed to serve as a guide for the way that you offer the service that you offer to your families. So this is not a quick fix. It's not a quick win. It is something that will take some time and it's going to take some time for you to see that you're actually moving the needle on these metrics that we're talking about. So that's an important aside that I felt like I needed to say. And it should take a long time because it's something that should last a long time. Exactly. Exactly. If you're changing your brand all the time, not just the brand, but I mean, everything that goes along with it, what are people connected to? Right. If you have alumni that you're trying to talk to who are connected to five different mission structures, languages, logos. Okay. How do you communicate with them? That's just making everything harder for you later, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I actually, that's a great point because at my previous school, with our alumni in particular, we had this unique position where we had an entire group of alumni who graduated from the school before it was reincorporated and the mascot changed. Mm. And so we had one group of alumni who were Falcons and they were really connected to the Falcon imagery and the colors, the green and gold. And then we had the Huskies that came afterwards, completely different color scheme, completely different mascot. Mm -hmm. And we had to be able to create content, develop messaging, host events that honored both. And so that's a really, and this was after a rebrand, right? And so part of it is thinking about what are some of those legacy things that you do need to preserve and incorporate into this new brand as you're going forward. What, what do you think is the minimum amount of time someone should allow before doing a full brand refresh? I mean, brand language will tweak over time, and, but like a full brand refresh, what do you think is the minimum amount of time? Oh, that's such a good Is question. <laughs> I And that's honestly, just knowing that it takes time for a brand to take root, mm-hmm. I'm inclined, and anyone who who d- lives and breathes this on a daily basis, you know, feel free to keep me honest, <laughs> but I think te- I would say 10 years. And I say that because you don't want your existing brand, whatever that looks and feels and sounds like to take root. And then just as people are starting to embrace that, you ask them to embrace something else. Mm -hmm. And I think another piece of that that's really important is that there are different aspects of your brand that can change on different timelines. You know, and that's something that's really important to understand. Your institutional identity is something that for the most part, is relatively stable. You know, who you are at your core is something that for the most part can be relatively stable. If you're a large institution like a college or university, that's very different because you have the different colleges within the institution. Mm -hmm. And I just read that the college that I attended completely rebranded its elementary education program. So, and their, their college of education is called something else now. And I had no idea. I was like, oh, okay. It's got a a nice, fancy new name. And they've revamped the elementary education portion in response to the changing guidelines for 
teaching certification in the state of Michigan. You know, so those types of things, you you have to be open to modifying them as they change. But that doesn't mean that Grand Valley State University is any different, you know, as an institution as it was, you know, a few years ago or even longer (laughs) when I attended. It's just an interesting thing to think. I mean, on the college side, I would think at a bare minimum, it has to last six years at a bare minimum because you've got most students will start Mm -hmm. heavily researching colleges junior year of Mm -hmm. high school. So you have two years there in high school, four years to get them through. That, That feels like a one way to think about what that minimum might be. I think you're right. I think because it would be weird to have a student see an institutional brand change over the course of their tenure there. You know, Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, whenever you change it, that's going to happen to. to Yeah, it it will happen to somebody, but it, you know, it's. But less than six years, you'll have people who might experience three brands. Right. Right. Yeah. You, you want to have some kind of continuity. Yeah. I think honestly, your visual identity might be one of those things that you want to hold on to the longest. Yeah. You can tweak messaging and things like that as needed. You kind of have to, you know, that's just part of a. I I wouldn't want the way that an institution approaches educating its students to remain exactly the same in perpetuity, because yeah. that means you're not growing and you're not responding to market needs. But some of the visuals I could actually see tweaking a little bit first. And they don't have to be major changes. That's the other thing. You don't have to Mm -hmm. do a wholesale logo change or completely overhaul your athletic branding. It can be a tweak here or there to refine what you already have without completely changing it. New spot illustration styles. Exactly. Exactly. And I think language is one of those things that probably every... Three years, you at least a minimum need to gut check it and make sure is the way we're talking about ourselves still the best way? Do we need to tweak some of these sort of core elements of our language, things like that? Absolutely. I've, I feel like I got you off track enough there. So we're, what's next? Well, those are, those are, that's a, such a good question. And I, I actually, I've got some people now that I want to reach out to and, and get checked that with, because I think you'd get some different answers too. Yeah. But the the last two metrics were broader competitive moat. What that means is that you have this clearly articulated value prop that dis- differentiates you from your peers. And that's the thing that I think schools struggle with the most, especially on the K-12 side. So that's that's a drum that I've been beating for for some time. We actually have a great session that my dear friend Lori Ehrlich is going to give at our virtual summit on this topic. Mm-hmm. But it's not the student-teacher ratio. It's not the number of AP classes you offer. It's not that your students have a love of learning. I actually hope that that's true for all of you. Mm-hmm. If not, that's a different problem. <laughs> I, I feel like you just described seventy-five percent of uh, of brands for for schools. I feel yes. like I see that everywhere. <laughs> everywhere, everywhere, and those things can be true, but that's not mm-hmm. your brand, you know. So you you really have to do that work to dig into what it means to be you and how that's different from your peers. Would you say the brand has to be true, but your truths aren't necessarily the brand? Yes. Yes. Like Mm. authenticity is absolutely paramount. Yeah. But your brand is not a collection of facts. Yeah. Right. It's it's (laughs) it's the benefits that you offer in the market. And one of the favorite things that I learned when I went through a rebrand at at my previous school, and I used this so many times in training other people is that you have to flip the mentality of the way that you describe what your institution does from a list of features to benefits. And that's branding 101. You know, when you look at all of these different schools and they're focused on things like, you know, how many acres they have and how many courses they offer, how many athletics teams, like that's all great, but that's not, that doesn't tell anybody anything about who you actually are. And that is something that needs to be evident from the very beginning. Those fast facts are fine. You know, I've talked and written about some different ways that schools can think about those that lean into your brand, but but the facts are not the brand. 
Yeah. There's no emotional attachment. There's no excitement. There's no stickiness. It's just, what can I learn? No, it's people want to know, what are you going to do for my kid? Yep. That's the, that's the, (laughs) that's the thing. And and how is that different from the six other schools that I'm applying with? Right. Mm -hmm. Or, or considering. So that's, that's the question that you have to answer is what is it that you uniquely offer to your prospective families? And then the last one's improved scalability. And that I also was pretty excited about because I've seen the reverse of this. <laughs> that is that you don't have to make every big decision around the leadership table because everyone understands what you're working toward. Everyone understands how your brand applies to your decision-making processes. So you can delegate more and you can empower other people who aren't senior leaders to make those decisions because everything is brand and mission focus. So it just simplifies your processes. And that's a, if you can get there, that's a big win. You're up. Well, what are your marketing takeaways? Yeah. My, my big one, one that I'm still really excited about. I had a great conversation with Chris Hebner for the podcast, great episode on mental availability. And it's, it's a concept I hadn't heard of, it's what I really meant when I was talking about awareness, but mm-hmm. I had never, it's, yeah, it's really, it's a great framework. It's a great conversation. I think this is what we really need to strive for in marketing, that it's this next level. It's awareness for, mm-hmm. so in, in this case, mental availability would be if I'm buying something or I'm considering something, what do I think of? What brands come to mind when I think of this other topic? Some of the key points need to make sure that your media spend is right. Uh, that was a big one. Are you just spending willy nilly to, to make sure that you are just covered everywhere? <laughs> are you being very strategic? Do you have enough invested when you're only spending one or $2,000? You're not going to get much out of that. Right. You need to invest more in that if that's your goal. Uh, you can't just say, well, I'm going to build awareness. We're going to get a bunch more applications and visits and go spend a thousand dollars. How much is a visitor worth? How much is an enrollment worth? Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you're going to spend 1% of that to try and drive it, that's not a great investment. Yeah. You need to, you need to spend enough to get back what you want. You need to have distinctive assets. You know, the collateral that really sets you apart. A lot of what you were talking about, how are you standing out? Mm-hmm. What do your videos show? What do your photos show? Is it the same thing you see everywhere? Is it this stock photo of students? Or <laughs> it looks like a stock photo of students sitting around all smiling? You know, I love the drone video yep. of the campus. That's my the, favorite. <laughs> the drone slowly <laughs> rising up over campus. Yep. Uh, there's the dining hall with, with the table of students. I mean, you see a lot of the same thing everywhere. So what actually makes your photo memorable? And it's something I've, I've presented about before where I'll show these examples from actual universities and say, which of these actually gets you to stop scrolling and pay attention? Mm-hmm. Uh, when you have students, are they looking at the camera? Because that eye contact is something that triggers us to, to stop. Yep. Is it one stu- student in the background of a photo? Okay. There's one I love to use as an example where it's the, the iconic quad or mall or whatever your institution calls it. Big grass area, students everywhere, some students playing Frisbee. <laughs> nowhere is there any signage any idea what campus it is it could be anybody it could be anybody but centered in the background of the photo is like a, a box truck unloading yeah. and whenever i show this to people that's what they focus on <laughs> and it's, this was a promotional photo from a university oh no and gra- but but everyone's key takeaway is right centered in the middle of the photo is a box truck Oh that, my gosh. And there's nothing to identify. There, there's photos and things that are technically fantastic photos, well framed, well lighted, you know, good composition, all that. But nowhere in the photo is anyone wearing anything distinctive to say what institution it is. Mm-hmm. It could just be a stock photo. Everyone has that photo on the college side of students in a computer lab and a, and a professor pointing at the at the screen. <laughs> Every K-12 has a picture of the counselor and student sitting together, pointing at a book or pointing at a computer. Everyone's oh, yeah. smiling. Yep. That, that's not distinctive. 
Yeah. That's not telling you anything about the brand. That's not telling you anything about the experience. I have started thinking of this mental availability as almost as a Pavlovian response. Ooh. When X are you remembered? Right. One yeah. of the examples Chris used was uh, the way Coke frames it with if you're grilling out in the summer, they position themselves. If you're grilling, you're thinking of Coke. Yeah. You know, if you're thinking Christmas with their ads there, you're thinking of Coke. Yeah. When you think Super Bowl, you might think Budweiser, right? Yeah. There's, there's all these little things that there's that connection because over time they've built that affinity. Yeah. And so when you think of a specific major, a specific athletic program, a specific yeah. outcome, who do you think of? Yeah. And that's that's <laughs> fundamental positioning, right? It's mm-hmm. all about the space that you occupy in your audience's mind. And I loved this episode too. I actually originally had it on my list and then I saw that you had it so I took it <laughs> off because I knew we were going to talk about it. And there are a couple of things that I I wanted to kind of come back to. The first one being the very good point of thinking about your budget through the lens of what an enrollment is worth to you. Because mm-hmm. that's true no matter what. You know, on my side of the house, if you charge tuition, that's one, you know, full play student, hopefully. Yeah. But if you're at a public school or a district, there's funding assigned yeah. to every single student. And so if you work in a district that spends, let's say, $15,000 a student, but you're unwilling to part with $2,000 or $3,000 or $4,000 to actively market to prospective families, that's something that you really want to think about. You know, you can't throw all of your your chips into one basket. You know, people are, are always willing to spend a lot of money on something like a website, right? Or even yeah. billboards. A billboard. Like, yeah, you know, <laughs> billboards. Nobody blinks at spending thousands yeah. of dollars on a billboard, But when it comes to spending money or investing in something that actually meets students and families where they are, you know, which is online most Mm. of the time, and you can measure it, which, you know, we're always big fans of that. (laughs) You really have to, I would, I would really encourage people to think about that. It's not just, I have this limited budget and, you know, I've got to be really, you know, careful with it. I mean, of course you want to be a good steward of your budget, but really come back to what is a newly enrolled student worth to you? The other thing that I actually found to be super helpful, and if you can make this work somehow, some way, as you're thinking about your institutional brand, is that we had a style guide for photography. And that was a game changer because it was something that we could use internally for the person on my team who was going around and taking photos for social media. And I could give it to our photographer when we had a professional photo shoot. And it very clearly defined these are the types of images that represent our brand. So we got away Mm -hmm. from the box checking of let's make sure we have a diversity photo and let's make sure we have gender balance and let's make like it, it it went beyond that because if you only focus on again, the facts about your institution, we serve, you know, we're co-ed, we're JK to 12, we're, you know, like that's all great, but it helped us to think about our photography as an extension of our brand so that we only photograph things that really represented that. And we photograph them in a way that further reinforced the brand. So the lighting was specific mm-hmm. to our brand. The way that we positioned students was specific to our brand. The angles that we used were specific wow. to our brand. Oh yeah, it was great because like, okay, we need to make sure we have more photos that provide a sense of movement because that was part of our brand, you know, and once you start doing that, you're able to take photos that subtly reinforce your brand and differentiate you from, you know, to your point, the stock photography that you start seeing everywhere on the internet when you're evaluating schools or in the mail, you know, we get that too. Um, So if you can extend your brand to your photography and really try to think about that, that's another way that you can set yourself apart. One of the things from that conversation I wanted to, to pick your brain about was the idea of co-buying, where students are buying this thing, or in the case of something else, like you're buying tortilla chips, you might also be co-buying salsa or queso. Uh, but in this case, you're buying an education, right? you're buying the experience. 
my thought is some of these co-buying may be extracurriculars, mm-hmm. maybe some of these other. What what do you think would be some other co-buying opportunities on the PK-12 side? I can use two examples from my backyard that are... Lawn chairs and, and a fire pit. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, lawn chairs and fire pit. <laughs> S'more sticks. Um, yeah. yeah. Now, it, so in the independent school world, I'll start there because I think it differs by segment. So in the independent school world, I would say, you know, a lot of the time for some families, it they've got an eye toward college matriculation, right? They have a specific mm-hmm. list in mind. And so some families choose certain schools because they look at that list and they look at their college counseling resources and the courses that are available and they think, okay, I'm not just buying an overall educational environment for my child, but I'm buying a path. Some families are co-buying additional support for a learning difference. You know, some parents are co-buying networking opportunities, both for their children and themselves. You know, if I rub shoulders with the right people, then my child can get this internship that they might not be able to otherwise. Or, you know, I can network for my own business in a way that I might not be able to otherwise. Mm So that's something that can happen on the independent school side. With religious schools, it's a little different. And they tend Mm -hmm. to be looking more for, you know, that kind of faith-based character education is something that they're also co-buying. Especially right now, I know that with Catholic schools in particular, which I grew up in Catholic schools, they tend to have a lot of structure and a very traditional approach to education. Some families are co-buying that where it's not just Mm -hmm. about sending your child to school, but I really want my child to learn in this specific way. I want there to be these specific consequences when it comes to discipline. So they're looking for something that's very specific. With the public schools, it, it it varies. You know, some people are co-buying a connection to their local community. You know, like that's something that can be really important to them. Some are co-buying a pathway to a specific school again. You know, in mm-hmm. my area, I happen to live in the county where Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology is located. Everyone knows them to be one of the top-ranked high schools in the country. And there are families who will choose where they live to make sure that their children are taking classes at very early ages and have access to opportunities that will put them on the path to attend that high school so that they can attend a specific college. So I think I think there are all sorts of things that you'll run into on the PK-12 yeah. side for sure. Would... I mean, you got into it a little. Would the clout or the name even be co-buying? Oh, 100%. Well, we've talked about... Is that co-buying or is that the purchase decision itself, though? I think there's absolutely... That is a co-buying experience. Because the decision itself, that's the kid, right? It's the kid who's going into the school every day. But your ability, by proxy, to put that on your car... (laughs) you know, and and talk about it, you know, at the country club or Mm -hmm. at the grocery store or wherever you happen to be. That's absolutely a co-buying experience, I think. It's a, it was just a really interesting topic. I really, really enjoyed that deep dive. Yeah. Uh, The second one here, and I wish I could remember who, who to give credit to here. I think it was either Jenny Petty or Angie Cooksey, but I discovered on LinkedIn, Carrie Phillips blog, Um, And I'll link to it. Just a lot of really interesting topics. I've been reading through some of those. A couple couple of the blog posts that jumped out at me, one really about differentiation, Mm. that we cannot be all things to all people. Yes. I know everyone wants to say their college is is inclusive and everyone can thrive there and, and all da 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 da. It's simply not true. Some students do better. I mean, you need to take a stand because if you try to just be this wishy-washy everything to everybody, how do you stand out? Who's going to yep. be successful? And that's where we're seeing some of these colleges that take a really hard stance of here's who we are. Here's what we do. If you don't fit in, we're not the place for you. Yeah. We're doing really well. Yeah. Hillsdale and Liberty take a hard stand of this is who we are. Absolutely. They are doing just fine. Yeah. 
students know going in, this is what they stand for and they either want it or they don't. Yeah. And that's okay to say, here's who we are. Mm-hmm. And, and yet so many colleges are kind of afraid of that. The, the idea of being this welcoming and inclusive place doesn't mean you have to be faceless. Absolutely. And that, that happens on the PK-12 side too, mm-hmm. as you know. I, I think there's still a lot of anxiety because part of a brand is not just saying who you are and who you're for. It's also saying who you're not for, yeah. right? It's also yep. being able to very clearly articulate if you if your brand expression is working the way that it should people should be able to see, okay, this is this is a place where my family would thrive. My child is going to be in a great environment. We're going to feel welcome and comfortable and included and part of the community. Or, you know what, this is not for us. And that's where that clarity piece becomes so important. But there's a lot of anxiety around that mm-hmm. still. You know, there's still a little bit of fear about turning anyone away. You know, yeah. we got to make sure that the top of the funnel is filled and then we decide, you know, who, yep. who, who fits and who doesn't. But you, it really should be the reverse where, you know, like don't waste a family's time and don't waste yours. You don't want there to be surprises halfway through the process because that doesn't mm-hmm. feel good for anybody. It's one of those strange things. If you are small and tuition driven, there's a fear of we can't we can't just turn people away from the beginning. We need to show them yeah. how great we are. All this, yeah. But ultimately, I think it backfires. Oh yeah. And the people don't have as strong of an affinity, and they don't have that stickiness again. There's no yeah. connection point there, and so they wind up going somewhere else. Where if you had taken that hard stand of here's who we are, you would turn some people away, but you would have some people with a stronger affinity. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. There's a lot of great stuff there. Uh, so we'll, like I mentioned earlier, have links to all these uh, in in the show notes. Jive into the enrollment side. Let's do it. <laughs> all right. What, what have you been reading? So this is actually my reflection from a podcast episode that I did, uh, should be a couple months back now, maybe a month ago with the Winchenden School, which is a niche partner. They're a very unique institution in that they're a boarding school with two different campuses. So they have one in New York and one in Massachusetts. And I spoke with their director of admissions and their director of marketing communications, both of which are single person shops. I was just blown away by how high touch and personalized their yield campaign is and how much they're getting done, even though they really only have each other to lean on. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I thought it was, I, I, my hope is that that was an inspirational episode for people who are in a similar boat where they don't have a lot of resources because it showed that if you have a really solid partnership between marketing and admissions and you really take the time to tap into that you know, mental database of information that you collect about students over the course of the admission cycle, there's so much that you can do. Their approach was really focused on both the individual students and showing how well they knew the students, but also teasing out some of the experiences that those students would have if they were on campus. So Hmm. over the course of the yield season, you know, between when students were accepted and their enrollment deadline, there were a variety of touch points that a family and a student would receive from the school. And so one of the things that they do is send, you know, a gift card to say like, hey, here's a gift card that you can use to one of the local haunts that our students tend to go to for food the next time that you're in the area. Or, you know, here is I'm going to forget what these things are called because I don't use them. But the things that go on the back of the phone, you know. Oh, yeah, a pop socket. The pop socket. Yes, there's a pop socket to help you hold on your phone while you're browsing in between swim meet sessions. You know, just like random, random things that they knew about the kids, but that were super, super personalized. Mm -hmm. And it was the highest level of personalization that I had heard of as part of a yield campaign. And the fact that they were even taking a campaign approach to yield season. So it's not just here's your welcome box. We'll send you a couple of emails about things that you need to do. <laughs> but it's there's actually like a multi-pronged approach to 
making sure that they're connecting with every single accepted student. They get a lot of information about stuff that you need from them and things mm-hmm. that you need them to do, but you're not giving them anything to help them feel connected and to build that affinity with the institution. And at, that's at a really critical time because they're new. They have no other reason aside from what they've experienced during the admission cycle to feel anything about your school. Mm-hmm. You know, So that's such a critical time that I think is usually a missed opportunity for a lot of schools where it's like, here's your, your swag box. Here's a few more to-dos. You get even more to-dos if you have an older student because they have to do course registration and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. There's the athletics piece. But if you have a young one, you know, if you've got a kid in elementary or lower school, you're just kind of hanging out. And there might be, you know, a summer party or something like that. But there's just so much more that I think schools can do to help families feel welcome and to start to build that connection and that really deep emotional tie to an institution before their kids are showing up in their uniforms on opening day. And I would also say, you know, for the districts out there, there are some opportunities for you too. You know, I think it's a, it's a heavier lift. So I, it, you probably can't do it for everyone, but maybe you do something over the summer for your incoming kindergarten class, you know, just to help them feel more connected. I mean, especially at a time where that's their first school experience for a lot of kids. Mm -hmm. How can you make the whole family feel connected and safe? Like their kid's going to be okay when they get on the bus on the first day of school. So those are really important questions that I think anybody could be thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. It makes such a big difference having something that's relevant to them. Yes. Not just meeting your needs of, well, we sent this form letter to everybody. So now they know the information. Right. Keeping on the sort of yield idea and your work, uh, (laughs) I loved the post on revisit programs. Oh, yes. On the higher ed side, we call them yield events. Same idea. It's that spring event kind of locking people in, getting them excited about the next steps. You had a lot of things that I just was like, yep, yep, love it, love it, love it. (laughs) This idea of just being yourself, but be real. Yes. We, We touched on that a little bit earlier too, but you have to be able to show people what the experience is really like and not just try to make them fall in love with it. Absolutely. Are you, are you selling for next year or are you selling for a long-term relationship? I know people hate the term selling, but same idea. (laughs) The more personalization, the better with these events. Is it Mm -hmm. going to be something really relevant to them or is it a event where they're just walking from one thing to the next and they sit and listen to someone else talk I love your idea of having these what to expect guides for guests. I think that's something anyone can do for major visit events, small visit events, just something to make sure that they know because yeah. while, while it might be called a revisit, it may be their first time on campus too. Exactly. So exactly. Helping make sure they know what to expect. I love the idea of a scorecard. Yes. Through. Yeah. And, and kind <laughs> of great things along as they go. Guide to insider locations, coupons. How do you make yourself feel like you're part of it? Tons of great ideas there. I know sometimes people will say, well, that's that's for PK-12. But ideas are the same, whether you're higher ed, whether you're grad school, whether you're, I mean, you have people coming to campus for the first time. Yeah. Right? You have people who are registering for classes. If you can make them feel more welcome, more involved, take away some of the stress by saying, Here's everything you need to know coming in. You're doing them a great service. I appreciate hearing that because it's that was one where I was like, I wonder how applicable this would be on the higher ed side. Mm-hmm. And it that last section about the offline tactics, I really love because mm-hmm. I think that when people think about this push-pull between, well, everything has to be digital. I can't do any, you know, nothing, yep. nothing can happen offline. That's not true. That actually, like, I'm a big advocate of sending things to people and give handing things to people if they provide value and yeah. if they're relevant, right? And so your revisit time is actually a really great opportunity to do exactly that and to reinforce your role as a resource to them, which I would hope schools are taking throughout the process. You know, I know that when I was in my previous role, That scorecard idea, we actually flipped it and we had a guide for 
evaluating schools where it's like, yeah, we know you're looking at us, but here's something that you can take with you as you're looking at all of these other schools to help you stay organized, which people love. I think they're still using it actually. And it's just, I mean, it, it's, it's a way for you to help them through a process that can be really complicated and really anxiety mm-hmm. inducing. And they're going to remember the schools that helped them and supported them and took them by the hand more than the ones who just asked them for stuff. Yep. Or just promoted themselves constantly. Oh yeah. We, yep. we get both. We see. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> who was it? There was someone I was just talking to this past week or so who was talking about on visits where something like this and these printed materials you get are just the same promotional materials you'd get anywhere else and they just wind up in the recycling. Yeah. But this is a practical takeaway. There's a yes. reason for printing it. Yes. It's not something. Yes, some people will just pitch it. Yeah. But it does okay. provide a tangible value to them. Yes. Yes. And you don't want to see your institution's logo in the trash or the recycling bin. So try yep. to avoid that to the extent that you can. <laughs> yep. Or littering the sidewalk. Or, Ooh, that's the worst. That's yep. the worst. We don't want that. The second big one here on the on the recruiting side. So we do Insta Insights. So in addition to the big research projects, these are very short term. One that came about as a result of a conversation with a high school counselor last fall. Uh, we looked at how are these traditional recruiting tra- tactics uh, being used and, and being um, how are they influential to students? And so this was really interesting because what we wound up finding is that the traditional recruiting tactics are just not as effective going out in the fall for several weeks where you're visiting high schools and going to college fairs. Students largely either aren't using it or aren't saying that it's affecting their interest in a college. Well, that's expensive. That's time consuming. Yes. Are there ways that we can optimize that? Are there ways we can scale back? Can we change the way we're doing it? Of sort of the college fairs and traditional activities, only college fairs were used by the majority of high school students. It was the most impactful as well, but only 27% said that it would significantly sway, sway their interest in a college. So these visits to the high schools, most of the time were having very little impact. It was students who were already mm-hmm. interested, had already applied, they were the ones meeting with the colleges. So then what's, what's the goal there? When we, when we look at some of these, so meeting with a rep at your, at your high school where it's a small group setting, only 11%. So it would significantly sway their, their opinion. The presentation style where you're sitting in the conference room or the cafeteria or auditorium, only 8%. So it would sway. And then the dreaded I- lunch visit where you have a, the table set up in the cafeteria and the hallway only 3% of students that would significantly sway their opinion. Yikes. That's, you know, as someone who has sat through multi-hour lunch visits, <laughs> knowing that I might impact 3% of the students there, it uh, doesn't feel great. Uh, <laughs> no, it's not a good use of anyone's time. And I, how much box checking do you think is happening here? Where it's like, this is what we, this is what you do. So we just, yeah. we're going to do this again this year. And there's, I've gotten, I've gotten a lot of response to it. Yeah, Either I, people I, saying, yes. oh, oh, thank you. This is, this is helpful. We've been trying to cut back a little. We just needed some data mm-hmm. to people saying, well, this is obviously wrong because I think that this really helps these students. Like, but like even, even things that I really believe deeply in that this was an access tool for low income first generation underserved students. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the case. The, the low-income, first-gen, and underrepresented minority students were less likely to actually take advantage of these visits. And oh. they were no more likely to say that changed their feelings about college. So, okay, that, that changed my thoughts a little. Yeah. I still think there's a ton of value in meeting with the school counselors, with the college counselors. They're going to be the ones who can help influence student interests for years to come. I'm not saying eliminate visits. Right. You know, that's, that's something that some people have said that I'm saying in this, <laughs> it's, it's not as effective in the ways we thought it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So is it instead a way to really meet with the students who have already applied on their own turf? Is it a way to go out, just do some branding work, but maybe not visit every single high school, you know, with, with the cost of travel going up, 
I mean, yeah. car rentals, hotels, flights. Everything. Yeah. We're seeing such high turnover too. So you're sending out counselors who may be on the job for a week. Right. You know, is that the best use either? Is the style of presentations, does that need changing? There's a lot of things. And I had the great opportunity to talk to, um, oh, SAC Act as a leadership organization, Southern ACAC. And oh. so I spoke to some of their counselors and, and college recruiters and had some good back and forth there in terms of what they, some directions they were taking out of this. Next month here, I'll be a guest on the Higher Ed Marketing Lab podcast where we get deep, dive deep in some of these visit experiences. There was a lot of things coming out of that that changed how I thought about it. When we would have students come to campus, one of the things that every student who visited campus did was sit down in a one-on-one meeting and we'd kind of share some of the, well, here's who we are. What are you really interested? We, we thought of it as a way to really get to know that student, but almost no students said they wanted that experience on a campus visit. It, it uh, was, I mean, when you think back, there were a lot of sort of awkward yeah. conversations where the student didn't want to open up and talk. Yeah. It was a weird thing if you're 15, 16, 17, 18, to just sit down in a small room with your parents and this person you don't know yeah. to talk through things. There were a lot of great conversations too, but making every student do this thing that most of them don't want to do, you know, I don't know if that's the best use of a visit. Right. Wow. A lot of really interesting things that came out of that. Just want to hit sort of a, a the, the really interesting episode of the Higher Ed Geek podcast with Dave Becker from Campus ESP. Really this idea of seeing parents as partners. A lot of times we can, at least on the on the higher ed side, I know on PK-12, they're the one you're talking to typically. Yeah. <laughs> Where they they almost have to be worked around because mom and dad want to grab the reins and do everything. Yes. But we want to talk to the student, right? We want to make sure the student knows all this. But instead, seeing them as partners in this process, really communicating well with them, making sure that they have these specific outreaches and these specific things that speak to what they want and what they care about. Uh, Because a lot of times parents are already pretending to be the students, which is its own issue. (laughs) So making sure that it's easier for them to be themselves and get these questions answered and build that relationship. Really, really appreciated that conversation. I know, I know it's not really the same type of problem on the K-12 side. It it is different. And I, I actually, you're reminding me of a blog post. I think it was Jill Goodman who did a post about different parent relationships. And one of the things that she mentioned was a school that she spoke to that changed the way that they talked about their partnerships with parents from partnership to collaborator. (laughs) And that was a really big semantic change because unfortunately, in the K-12 side, when you talk about parents as partners, that reinforces this idea that they should have control over what is happening mm, okay. <laughs> at school, you know, in the yeah. classroom. Okay. And when you when you flip it to collaboration, then it's more about how we can work together as a team around your child. And so I thought that was really interesting because it is a it, it can be a real challenge, you mm-hmm. know, trying to figure out that parent school relationship and connection. And you have some parents who really want to be in the driver's seat in a way that's not always appropriate. And so so just changing that language a little bit from partner to collaborator seems to be working really well for this particular school and just setting Mm -hmm. the expectation for what the parent's role actually is. So you're right. It is different. Um, it's, it's very different in the, in the K-12 space for sure. And that language can be important. Different problems. Yep. Different problems, the different opportunities as well. I think. Just rapid fire, a couple, a couple quick plugs here. A lot of the idea for this sort of breakdown episode came from the Trusted Voices podcast. Yeah. Uh, If you're not listening, really love that. I like their format of they have the guest and then the follow up just kind of debrief. Love Love it. it. And then the servant marketer, great podcast by itself. But then also there was an episode that I really liked with Christina Garnett about building authentic communities, Mm. really finding issues and building communities around them is one of my big takeaways there rather than 
just trying to have some resources and and throw these things at students and parents as they're coming, really build a community who can work together, they can come together over it. She had some good questions in there. So is the community itself the goal or are the people coming together to become better the goal? Wow. Do you want to build a community to say that you have this community of parents, of students, of whatever, or is the goal to actually bring them together so they can all be better? That's really powerful. Yeah. So often it's the first one. Well, Mm -hmm. we're going to build this community of incoming students. We're going to build this community of alumni. Is that your goal? No, that that's happens a tactic. K twelve too. Yeah, I think it happens. Everywhere. I don't think. I don't think it's. I don't yeah. think people do it thinking about it in any way other than just here's what we want to do. And but what you're doing is a tactic. Yeah, it's not yeah. the goal. It's the tactic. It is. It is. And then you wonder why it doesn't work. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same thing. Like, well, we're going to do digital marketing. Okay, that's a tactic. Yeah. Right. What's the goal? What are you trying to do specifically? Exactly. And how yeah. does digital marketing help you do that? Yep. And or or the we're going to send a mailer about our visit program. Okay, but but why? Right. Is <laughs> the goal is to get visits. Okay, well, let's figure out what people need to get excited about that visit. Right. Don't start with the tactic, start with the goal. And and the last part here that I think is uh is really good and gets at some of this ego that sometimes I think marketers <laughs> and all of us can have of you can't think that you, the person building a community is the hero of the story. Correct. The, the people coming together are the hero. What they, what they do together is the hero. Yeah. But if you make it all about, well, we built this, our institution built this community, our institution did this. It's not about you. No, it's about them. I love that because it applies to so many other things too. Yeah. It applies to every other touch point that you have with students mm-hmm. and families in general. And it reminds me of another great branding resource. There's this book, Building a Story Brand, that goes into the story brand framework where your target audience is the hero of the story. Yeah. And you're the guide in solving the problem that the hero has. Mm-hmm. And it's based on this idea that if you think about really great stories like Star Wars and some of these mm-hmm. things that, you know, have become very memorable that people connect with, that's the pattern that they follow, right? Mm-hmm. There's always there's a hero that has to overcome an obstacle and there's a guide that helps them to do that. And when you flip, to, flip your, your frame of thinking in that way, You'll, it'll become really easy for you to start to see where the holes are in the way that you're engaging with these different communities. Because as we've talked about earlier, in a lot of these situations, it is all about the school. We do this. We offer this. Yeah. We have this list of things. Don't you want to send your child here? You know, mm-hmm. And it's like, what it should be about is the student or the family and how you're going to help them to achieve their goals. So I, I think this is, it's spot on and it's true for so many other things when institutions think about the way that they market themselves. Yep, yep. For some reason I just had it pop into my head at the end of episode six, how different the movie would be if Yoda's force ghost just came out and said, mm, defeated Palpatine, I did. <laughs> like, well, no, you didn't, but okay, yeah, you were the guide, you helped out, but no. Uh, oh, he's not the hero of the story. He's a supporting character. He's a memorable one. That is correct. Oh, look at that. I managed to get one of Will's many voices that (laughs) we don't typically get to hear on air. It's phenomenal. Yeah. What other things have we been reading outside of this? Oh, gosh. So my, my current favorite is a book called Playing Big. It's long. Practical Wisdom for Women Who Want to Speak Up, Create, and Lead by a woman named Tara Moore who actually has a business that she's created, a coaching business called Playing Big, where she reinforces a lot of this. And I started reading this because this may surprise some people. It may not. But I, like just about everyone else on planet Earth in the last couple of years, am willing to admit that I am a victim of imposter syndrome. And even though I haven't 
necessarily had an experience to reinforce that imposter syndrome, it's still there. And Mm -hmm. I think that sometimes, you know, this is women specific, but honestly, I think it can happen to any of us. There can be that inner voice that keeps you from pursuing things or doing things that you probably should that would make you really happy um, Mm -hmm. because there's some you know, latent form of anxiety or self-doubt that you really need to learn how to work around. And this book helps you to understand how to do exactly that. So I would recommend it for any woman who's dealing with imposter syndrome. And it's not just career related, but it's like, you know, volunteer opportunities, creative opportunities, anything that could make a really big impact on your life, but there's something internally that's holding you back from doing it. And Mm -hmm. one of my favorite things about the book so far is that it walks you through an exercise of actually making your inner critic a person. And so you're able to, as a result of that, separate that person from your actual voice. Because I think sometimes you hear that voice that's saying, no, you can't do this, or you're not cut out for that. And you think it's you. And, and you think, well, okay, if my, if my gut is telling me that I shouldn't do this, then clearly that's correct. But there's actually a difference between an inner critic and an inner advocate or inner mentor. Mm -hmm. And it's that mentor that you want to really get to know and nurture and, and see as, as your own voice. Um, so there's the the visualization exercise of actually personifying your inner critic and your inner mentor is an ex- it's an interesting exercise because in the book she talks about how a lot of the time we look for external mentors to help us in our careers specifically when a lot of the time we know what the right next step is or how to solve a problem we just don't feel confident enough to do it so we look to mm-hmm. other people to do it for us. But if you're able to envision this version of yourself that has all the answers and embodies all of the things that you aspire to be, a lot of the time, if you go to that person with the question or the problem, they have the exact right answer. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a really interesting read. Within just a few pages, I felt like she was standing in my bedroom and talking to me. Mm-hmm. So I knew that that this was the right book to read at the right moment. And I highly recommend it for anyone who you know, has big dreams and big goals, but still has that voice coming from, you know, wherever it could be a parent or a crabby teacher you had at one point, part of the exercise is figuring out where that inner critic comes from. Mm -hmm. But wherever that inner critic comes from, um, if you're looking to get her to sit down and be quiet, then this is a good book to read. (laughs) Yeah, that way you can just say, ah, be quiet. Exactly. Exactly. Or I've got this. You and know? then you're not telling yourself to be quiet. Exactly. Which exactly. Kind of I named mine Ursula for, <laughs> for reference. <laughs> I did a nice little mermaid callback yeah. for mine. So <laughs> if that helps somebody listening out there, you're welcome. Yeah. And that way, if you ever hear Angela talking about Ursula, we'll know why. We know why. <laughs> I'm not going crazy. She's a real person, sort of. Sort of. A real person <laughs> in my head. Exactly. Most of what I've been reading and everything else has nothing to do with work. It's either a mystery novel That's or good. something else. But I, I do want to throw this analogy out there and see if it makes any sense to anyone but me. <laughs> it, it's kind of my favorite time of the year. I like football. It's the NFL offseason. I like the strategy. I like seeing the the pieces. I like Sarah Care. Are they going to build for the long term? How are they going you know, are you looking for the the short term wins of spending big on bringing in all these big names? Are you looking yeah. for long term, and you're trying to stock up on draft picks and pick the right people? It, it's that that period of endless possibility, where you have all these kids coming out of college, who, right now, any single one of them could be a star. They haven't set foot on the field yet, and seeing these people who everyone overlooked, who become these giant stars because they were drafted late. It's it's really fascinating to me to watch and, and how much of it comes down to were they in the right place at the right time. Mm. And I think about that a lot in terms of other careers, other aspects. Yeah. You, know, you see people who would be fantastic directors or VPs, but were they in the right place at the right time to get that promotion? Right. Right. 
And it's that same tor- sort of thing. Are we looking for short-term wins? We're only going to hire someone who's done the job before, or are we going to invest long-term in someone who's come up through the institution, knows the culture, has high potential? Yeah, the first year or two might be a transition for them, but we're not going to just fire them in a year or two. We're going to think long-term. And then thinking, too, about the big foundational pieces. I mean, in football, it's the offensive line, right? It doesn't matter how good your quarterback is if you have a bad offensive line. It doesn't matter how good your admissions team is if you have poor name recognition, poor branding, Mm -hmm. a lack of funding, a lack of resources. You could have the people who can connect with anybody, the people who are so deeply tied to loving the student, loving the process, helping them through But if you don't have things set up in a way that that student can see you, learn about you, build that affinity outside of, hey, I really love working with my counselor, but I just don't know how I fit in there. I don't know what sort of outcomes I can have. You know, you you have a hole there. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. And and then thinking so often in the NFL, you have these quarterbacks who do great. They're on their rookie contract. But then once they get paid, you can't pay for everything else. So you have this one strength, but you have holes everywhere else. Are we doing the same thing in marketing and, and everything else where we emphasize one topic so much that all these other things are just falling through the cracks? You know, if you have a, a whole bunch of counselors and you put all your time and energy developing one of them, what about all these others who might wind up leaving because they don't feel like they're getting the attention or they might leave because they don't feel like they can see themselves there? There's so many places where I, I think we can see that. We're really focusing on these students that our predictive models have said are, are the most likely <laughs> to come. Well, what about these students in the middle or the ones right. that are really connected, but the model says they won't come? Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to lose them if we don't pay attention to them. So in that sense, the model becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So they're just I've, I've been thinking about that as I'm going through watching free agency and everything. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's actually, that's like the perfect ending for this episode. Like it, we're, we're leaving <laughs> people with, a, a, I mean, it's beyond food for thought. It's like a big mm. old slab of steak that we just mm. slid across the table for <laughs> people to think about. Yep. Just need some garlic butter on top. And... Oh, <laughs> now I'm hungry. Goodness. All right. It's lunchtime. Well, thank you, Angela. Oh, thank you. This was fun. <laughs> It was. Let's do this again next quarter. <laughs>